welcome to Super Stonk Brothers, episode number 14. Today we are going to be talking about what our guest Luis Sanchez from LVS Advisory calls the toll road on high-end content production, which is Avid Technology. So in our discussion today, we'll be talking about Avid's current business, growth drivers, key risks, valuation, and opinions on future prospects. Welcome, Luis. Luis, Welcome. Luis, sorry. But uh, <laughs> by the way, before we jump into all that, though, I thought it was actually pretty interesting just in terms of, you know, your what you're doing currently as far as investing, you know, your career trajectory and kind of how you view investing. I thought that would be an interesting setup ahead of jumping into Avid. So I thought we could start there. So could you, Luis, tell us a little bit about yourself and LVS Advisory? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like before we get started, I just want to, you know, I just want to thank you guys for having me on and just kind of give you guys a big virtual hug uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, um, I've I've been a fan of, you know, the podcast and, you know, I reached out to you guys because I heard a couple of uh, the episodes you guys did about uh, video game companies. And I've, you know, I cover the video game industry as from the investment analyst side. And I got a lot of value from hearing your perspective from those episodes. I thought I thought you guys did really great work and I just want to thank you for that. And yeah, pleased to to be able to come on and like, you know, if me sharing can help other people in any way, like, you know, great. Um yeah. but we're we're stoked to have you, man. Long time listener, first time caller, right? And but you're <laughs> yeah, you're exactly. a professional and we're not. So it's <laughs> that's it's also really interesting to us to learn how a professional thinks, you know, and, and understand your thesis. Um, cause I think, yeah, you know, and by the way, what's really interesting is like when I, when I want to like learn about an industry, like the video game industry, right. I want to go and hear what the actual people who are running the businesses are thinking and what they're saying. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, your podcast and like other conversations is like really valuable to someone like me. Cause I'm really an outsider, right. I'm an outsider in almost any investment I make. So where I really try to spend as much time as possible is talking to the people who actually know what they're talking about so that I can get them, I could transfer some of their knowledge and try to understand it from, you know, the insider's perspective, but also from like the customer's perspective too, right? Which are different perspectives. Um, but, and I'm sure we'll get more into that later when we, when we, when we talk about Avid, because I, I think there's some interesting things about that. But to just say a little bit about myself, right? Uh, my name is Luis Sanchez, and I started a, an, an investment advisory firm called LVS Advisory uh, three years ago. And my background is like a very typical finance background. I spent nearly a decade working on Wall Street and working at different investment banks and investment advisory shops before I founded my own firm three years ago. And what my firm is, is basically it's just a full service investment advisory firm. I work with all sorts of different types of clients and help with all sorts of different types of financial situations. But what really different, what really differentiates my firm and what we do is we really focus on active investment management. So we're like an investment management boutique. And th what that basically means is we pick our own stocks and we manage our own proprietary investment strategies. Right. And Luis, when, when you say you're investment management, investment advisory, does that mean like your clientele or high net worth, individuals or is it what, what does your client base look like yeah sure so i'm what i'm classified as a registered investment advisory firm so we're licensed through finra 
And that basically, that license just basically gives us the ability to work with any type of client. Um, and so I'd say like the typical, like the typical client for me is a high net worth individual, but I also work with some family offices. I also manage some portfolios for other like large institutional investment firms. So oh, that's like more of a B to, that's more of a B to B relationship. Yeah. So I really, when I say it's, it's really a full spectrum, right? Like on the, on the, on the one side, I'm helping like a retired doctor figure out how how to handle their retirement money. And on the far other side of the spectrum, I'm like managing a portfolio for like, you know, like a, a very sophisticated investment firm. Got it. So you have contacts basically all over Wall Street and beyond, sounds like. My question for you is, why did you decide to go into business for yourself? Yeah, uh, for sure. So I think at the end of the day, like why does anyone start anything on their own? It's really you know, a couple of reasons, you know, the first is maybe you feel that you have some very special insight or you feel that you're particularly good at something, or you think that if you weren't operating within like the constraints of some institutional environment, you can like add value in some way. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I really, I, I thought a lot of those things and I really also just wanted to bet on myself, right? Cause I believe that I had some really interesting ideas about how to invest. And um, at my prior firm, I got a lot of exposure to the operational side of running an investment business. And so I, with that, I kind of felt really confident that I could go out on my own. And, um, you know, I, I really, I had some conversations with early investors and they went well and I, I, I took the plunge, right? Got it. But what it boils down to, right, is just having conviction in your stock picks and your research. And that's what we're talking about today, right? hundred percent. Yeah. And so Luis, yeah, maybe I'll take, or, Go sorry, ahead. I just wanted to kind of, kind of also ask you about your investment strategy. So you, you mentioned that you're active. I don't know if you've seen previous episodes where Steve and I talk about our own investment strategies, but I know Steve's been invested largely in index funds. Mm -hmm. is, is that right, Steve? That's and right. Like my current strategy is kind of like a hold forever against very, a very concentrated portfolio against, you know, uh, key technology trends over time. So that's why I, I I only look at a handful of names. So like, you know, Tesla, Alibaba, Amazon, Google, companies like that. But in terms of your own strategy, how are you thinking about your strategy? And what do you think about, you know, kind of the, the way that Steve and I are potentially investing? Yeah, so there's no like one right investment strategy. I think anyone who wants to like do this for themselves and like manage a portfolio, you need to figure out like what kind of investor you are and, and you need to kind of match your investment approach to not only your goals, like what you want to get out of it, but also your personality because psychology and like having conviction and being able to like manage through periods of volatility can can really either detract from your investment results if you have the wrong strategy or really add to your investment results if you have the right strategy that matches your personality. So I'd start with that, right? And I, I think what you guys, both of your strategies can make sense. You know, I think index funds make, are, are, are a great tool. They've done really well. And I think buy and hold, buying and holding really, really great companies and trying not to sell, trying not to, to mess up that long-term compounding is also a very viable strategy right um 
And I mean, like, yeah, I think, I think, I think that, that, that applies. Um, as far as like what, what I do, um, I, I've run like two very different strategies, like actively. And one of them is um, like a less, it's, it's designed to take less risk, but generate like a more consistent, like bond-like return, like five to 10% per year. And then another strategy I run is like what I call like an aggressive growth strategy, which is designed to, to take more risk, but generate more return. And, um, and I, uh, the reason I like running these two opposite strategies is because when I'm working with clients, it helps me like give clients like a balanced portfolio or figure out like what kind of mix and match of like risk and return can kind of make sense. Right. So a lot of people will have like what's called a 60, 40 portfolio, which is like 60, mm -hmm. 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And I kind of approach that by the, the, the two portfolios that I have, like, my proxy for a, a stock portfolio is my aggressive growth and my proxy for a bond for portfolio is the, the more defensive product. And uh, like, I, I try to use those to match um, like risk and return goals and what makes sense for people. Got it. So when you say bond, like you're still talking about equities, just much safer equities. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's actually a very unique strategy. And hmm. most of what it is actually is a merger arbitrage. Uh, oh. So, yeah, and like I, I have I have a background as an M and A banker. I worked in investment bank for several years, and I have a lot of uh, personal experience dealing with like M and A processes. So, even when I was working at other firms that were not focused on like event driven situations, in my personal portfolio, I was I was still following like M and A deals, and I was investing in some of them. And one of the big insights for me was that. Investing in merger arbitrage uh, was very uncorrelated to like the broader equity market, but still generated, yeah. in my opinion, very attractive returns, like call it double digit, 10 plus 10 to 20 percent annualized returns. And the way that I think about merger arbitrage is like and what and just just to define what it is, right? Like company A buys company B for like ten dollars a share. And if the stock's only trading for $9 a share, as long as the deal closes, you get your $10. So you get like an 11% rate of return. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get paid as long as the deal closes, right? Even if the stock market crashes, even if, you know, whatever happens, you know, that, that, that's a big, you know, that's a big if, you, you know, the deal has to close for you to get paid. But as long as you, as long as the deal closes, you do get paid. So then the way that you make your money and the reason why it's very similar to a, like running a bond portfolio, A is the returns fixed, right? If it's an all cash deal, so it's like a bond like return, but you're really just trying not to lose money, right? Just similar to bond investing, right? You're really just trying to avoid the situations where, you know, in, in the bond world, you're trying to avoid the situations where the company is not going to service its debt. In the merger R world, you're trying to avoid the situations where the deal is not going to close. And there's all sorts of risks behind that, right? Got it. And there's a okay. few other things I do in there. You know, we do preferred stock. We do dividend stock. We do invest in some bonds. And it's it's a bit of a diversified mix, but the vast majority of what I do there is actually merger arbitrage. That's really interesting. I had no idea that was even a thing. So <laughs> thanks for explaining that. Yeah, it's actually one of the reasons I started the firm is because nobody offers this strategy in like an accessible way. Hmm. Right. Now, Luis, one of the things I, I thought it'd be interesting for our audience to realize is that when you talk about merger arbitration, one thing that comes to mind is that when you think about the way that options are typically priced using Black-Scholes, for example, in a merger arbit 
arbitrage situation, that just goes out the window, right? Because it's no longer based upon a, a Black-Scholes formula. It's basically based upon the world and whether you know various regulatory issues clear or whether management agrees to deals and things of that nature. And so you naturally have a situation where the pricing is off. And so if you have a different model of the world that can tell you whether that thing is going to close or not, then, then you basically have an ability to gain value by un trying to determine if that will close or not. Yeah. Um, what I would say is I do not personally use options in really any of my portfolios. Um, well, no, no, I'm just saying from a pricing yeah, perspective, right? Yeah, no, like, but like if you think about the price, 100%. And then, you're totally yeah. right. I mean, so what, what happens is you, you have a binary distribution of returns, right? You're either yeah. going to make your 10% or you're gonna get blown up and, and lose, <laughs> you know, lose everything, right? Yeah. And what I would tell you is, I was just gonna preface what, what I was gonna say is because there's a lot of really, really smart option traders where all they do is focus on options for merger ARB and some okay. people do really well at it. Uh, it's, it's a very specialized, it's actually a very specialized uh, option strategy. So, so in that case, you're betting that the merger blows up and you probably have some perverse incentives, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you could, right? Or, or yeah. you could just bet, or you could just take, or you could just have a lot of leverage on that deal closing, right? So uh -huh. you could turn like a 10% equity return into like a 50% equity return, wow. something like that, right? Yeah. Through various means. Got it. Okay, should we jump into Avid? Uh, Steve, do you have any other questions? Uh, no, I, I think let's let's go to the thesis. Okay. So one of the interesting things that did come up when I was talking to you, Luis, was that your biggest position is an Avid. And so I thought it'd be great for us to talk about that in terms of, you know, we're, we're always looking for the best opportunity out there. And so could you speak to us in terms of Avid's business? And then maybe we can jump into why you're so bullish on Avid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I just want to give a quick, like, disclaimer out there that, like, um, I don't like nothing here is investment advice. And, you know, I just want to make this conversation is not in, intended to solicit anyone to buy or sell anything. And just, you know, full disclosure, uh, I'm a registered investment advisor. I manage money for clients. You know, I am long avid. I, my clients are long avid and just, you know, full disclosure out there. So my <laughs> lawyers don't appreciate that. Me. Yeah, yeah. And, and Steve and I are just game guys. So. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're amateurs, man. And uh, don't worry, we always uh, we always put the language in when we post as well. So, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I own Avid, and it is actually my my largest position in in my growth strategy right now, right? And it, like, it's interesting, like. Largest position doesn't necessarily mean it's like the stock that I think is going to go up the most. It doesn't mean I think it's like the best stock in the world, but it but it means that I think like the risk return on it is is really good. And you know, th there's a lot of ways to define like best position or you know how you think about it. And I, I just say like I, I like I like Avid, right? And the the thesis basically and like what Avid is is like Avid is a technology company. And it basically provides tools for professional video and audio creators. So this is like high-end audio and video creators. So we're talking like Hollywood films, broadcast TV, major label music artists. So 
if it's on if it's on YouTube, it's probably not Avid. But if it's on Netflix, it, it probably is Avid. There's it's, it's it's really interesting because it's like one it's a company that powers something that almost everyone has exposure to yet nobody knows what it is. Uh, I think that the company has given this stat out there. They said 85% of everything that's on Netflix and Spotify has been touched by Avid in, in some shape, which is kind of an incredible stat. But that just also just gives you an idea of like the scope of like the nature of the, the content that they help create. And essentially what, what it is, is it's the industry standard for making that really high-end content. And their solutions are, the, the solutions that they're most known for on the video editing side is called Avid Media Composer. It's basically uh, an, a video editing software. And on the audio side, they have Pro Tools, which is a fairly well-known uh, digital audio workstation. And they also make the hardware for uh, film production and uh, music studios. On the film production side, the hardware is like the editing consoles. So if you look into an editing bay and you see all like the machinery, uh, that, that tends to be a lot of Avid. And they also make like storage for actually storing the, uh, the, the, the files after they're, after they're shot. They don't make the cameras, but the cameras input into their storage devices. Um, and I really like Avid's business model because the way that I would analogize it is they're selling like the quote picks and shovels to the professional content creators and picks and shovels. Like what, what this is referring to is during like the, the gold rush um, there were a lot of people who like flocked to California who are like prospecting for gold and very few people actually found gold and became super rich. Right. But the companies that sold these, these, this, these speculators and these prospectors, the picks, the axes, the genes, you know, the tools that they needed to get the job done, they tend to do always do really well, regardless. So in this situation, you know, Avid is supplying the tools and, you know, the quote unquote gold that people are mining is the, the music and video streaming industry, which has become like just this really fast growing, um, attractive ecosystem for, for content creators to sell into now. Um, as, as for like why it's my largest position, uh, basically, when I first looked, when I when I purchased the stock, I thought everything kind of lined up really nicely. Um, I basically have three filters, three key questions that I try to answer before I buy anything for my growth portfolio. And it, they kind of the first is really growth, which is do I think this company is in a position to like massively grow revenue or earnings over like the next five to ten years? And in this case, yes, because there's a huge content investment cycle that is unfolding right now. The second is, do I think the company has a competitive advantage that's going to enable them to actually capture the growth and not let that growth get competed away? And in Avid's case, I think the answer is yes, because they are the industry standard and they're very deeply embedded with their customers. And then the last thing is valuation, which is basically, do I think we're actually buying this stock at like an attractive price? And you know, we'll get to this later, but I, I think Avid's pretty reasonable. Um, and I've actually been learning about Avid for a long time, for more than a year, but I didn't actually buy the stock until about three months ago. And it, it took me, you know, the first time I looked at Avid in detail, I couldn't quite get my head wrapped around it. And, you know, what, where I really got the conviction actually was earlier this year when I was actually researching, I was actually researching video production companies for a totally different investment thesis. 
And just having the opportunity to talk to a lot of Avid's customer base. And I asked them a lot of questions about Avid. And I learned a lot of things about how COVID has changed the way that their industry works and how people are collaborating. And a lot of things clicked. And by talking to the customers, I was able to really gain that conviction where I was like, okay, I really understood. Here's what the company, here's how the company is actually positioned with its customers. And here's actually why it has a competitive advantage and why that's not, why I believe that the competitive advantage is actually going to be intact. So. Right. And, and maybe just speaking more specifically about growth drivers, and maybe I could kind of tell you my understanding. And I, by the way, I totally agree with you in the sense that Avid does seem to be a company with some, you know, be, where there are some strong tailwinds behind it. I don't know like how long-term they are, but certainly some of those things we could talk about. But from my perspective, the way that I view it is, so it, the video editing side, we've got a low end and a high end. They've completely like locked up the high end. And, you know, I, I used to work in LA and NBC Universal, and I met a bunch of people and like everybody, like all the studios use Avid basically. And then the trend that you're talking about though, is like this, this trend towards more professional content because of Disney plus Netflix, HBO, all these, all these new streaming services, there's this additional demand for additional content and on the back of COVID, which really drove this need for more and more and more and more content. And so we're seeing like the need for more professional content is making that professional segment increase. So that's one part. I think the second part would be then, now this is more risky. The low end of the segment, which is owned by, let's say, Adobe, to some degree, Apple with Final Cut Pro, and, and um, you know we, we could talk about competition later, but this lower segment, they have almost no market share in the low end segment. So theoretically, if you can make a low end skew, then you could potentially capture a much larger portion of the market. So, there, so then we've got like the high end with the content kind of trend, uh, the potential to go into the low end. But then also I would say a couple other things are happening on the audio side. So they've got audio editing tools, right? Like Pro Tools. And then we've got this move towards quality. So I, some people may use Spotify. Some people may also use Tidal. Tidal has this thing called master quality now. And so like to get that high end quality, I would assume that, you probably want to use some of their tools on the audio side. I don't know how big of a market that 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 will be. And then to your point about cloud, right? Like it no longer, it, it's not a necessity for everyone to work in the same place. A lot of the content is going to the cloud and then unlocking the ability to edit content geographically anywhere. That's, uh, that is another opportunity because as a store video content to store it and then allow the ability to collaborate and work on stuff on a cloud basis. So they've got the cloud kind of trend going. And then I think uh, the one final thing that's happening has been the business model, right? And so like they've been switching to more of like an Adobe, like they're basically just stealing a page out of Adobe's playbook and saying, hey, we're going subscriptions. And so then converting everybody from you know a typical license model to more of a subscription-based model, they're able to see higher bookings per customer is that am i am i capturing all the growth drivers properly luis yeah uh absolutely right um and i I think like what's like really interesting though is like if you actually like dig into like how much 
growth is actually happening on the high end side. Um, it's, it's kind of incredible. And like, and really what you do is Avid makes their money, they're a B2B company, right? Primarily right now. So HBO and uh, Disney are directly buying from Avid. So Avid, Avid needs them to spend more money on content. And like, there's basically, I, I, I've heard it being called like a streaming war where Netflix is, you know, they have this, they have this like, you know, more than $10 billion annual budget and Disney just came out and they're trying to spend as much money as Netflix to catch up with them. And, um, and really interestingly, I, I think it was Discovery and Time Warner agreed to merge. And if you actually listen to what they said on the call where they were talking about why they merged, what they said was, now that we're going to be a merged company, we're going to have the platform to spend even more as a combined company on content that we could have individually as independent companies. So what they're all saying is like, we need to figure out it, it's, and it's actually funny because typically in a merger, they talk about how they're going to cut costs and you know, how they're <laughs> going to create synergies, but they're literally saying, no, like maybe we could cut some, maybe we could find some synergies and like the parts of the business that don't matter. But what matters is we need to spend as much money on content to get the customers. Right. Because the amount of subscribers coming into this ecosystem is, is crazy. And if you look at any numbers, even from like the COVID bump, like on top of however much COVID accelerated streaming uh, SVOD, uh, subscription video on demand uh, numbers, people think that over the next five years, there's going to be an additional 70% growth in the number of subscription on demand subscribers, right? Wow. So. Yeah, on top of that, and there's all sorts of other, you know, there's the ad, ad video on demand is also a huge, you know, that's like more the peacock where they're, they're maybe giving you like a discounted service, but they're actually making a lot more money selling ads because no one else yeah. would do it. And so there's this huge ecosystem, and that's just on the video side where, you know, it's really incentivizing these companies to spend as much money as possible on content. And, you know, really how I see it is Avid is like, they're not going to one for one if HBO doubles their content. Avid's not going to, you know, double its revenue, but you know they're going to capture some of that, right? Maybe maybe Avid collects an extra thirty or forty or fifty percent from HBO because um, HBO will get some uh, leverage on its content spend um, from Avid, but Avid's definitely going to benefit, right? Um, and then on the music side, you're, you're seeing something that's probably not quite as extreme, but it's still really interesting, which is like. The, the industry had a huge reset after Napster, basically. And the industry was in free fall in terms of like the amount of revenue that the music industry was generating for like the better part of 10, 15 years. And then over the last five years, basically physical sales bottomed. So, you know, they're still selling vinyls and CDs, but they're now they're not selling less every year. You know, the decline is not really as material. But now they're making all this money off streaming, off Spotify and Apple Music. And, and the, the revenue in streaming has been growing at like a 40% compound annual growth rate for like the last five years. And that industry is also expected to continue growing at like a 20, 30% over the next, you know, 10, 10 plus years. And what you're seeing with the major labels is they see the same thing, which is a need to invest in more artists, a need to invest in new content, a need to continue to build out their libraries. 
because if they're not building out their libraries, sure, they can continue to monetize, you know, the Johnny Cash catalog to a certain demographic. But if they don't, you know, have like the Olivia Rodrigo, they're not going to capture the new demographic. Right. And that's really where they're building the long term value of their business um, to their, you know, to their shareholders. So I think it's like a really, really healthy ecosystem. And I do a lot of software and enterprise software investing. And one of the most important things that I look for is a really healthy customer base that can afford to continue to ramp up your spend over time because they see the return on that spend. Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that because effectively all this growth in content spending is underwritten by these media companies' own subscription models, right? And the transition to the subscription model. So the second order effect is basically Avid moving to a subscription model on top of that subscription model to capture some of that <laughs> additional value, right? Because whenever you transition from direct payment to subscription or from ad-based to subscription, you just magically make more money. And it works on in practically every business, right? <laughs> even, even consumer packaged goods, where you have all these different, like, you know, monthly clubs now, right? It's, it's the new thing. And it's not even new. It's probably five years old now, right? But I belong to a million of these. And all of the streaming channels and, you know, Apple Music. And I'm thinking about Spotify, too, for their, you know, unique stuff. So <laughs> on and on it goes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, like, the low-end market is is still growing, you know, the, the market for, like, YouTube and other kinds of, like, TikTok and other influencers. And I was just thinking about this today. I saw a survey recently where, like, they did a poll of, like, Gen Z and millennials and, 56% of Gen Z and millennials say if they had the opportunity, they would be an influencer. And it's like, <laughs> right. And then they also do the poll in China and like the number one job is astronaut. And then people make fun of, <laughs> people make fun of like the different preferences, cultural preferences or whatever. That's a great sign for us. <laughs> Killing it over here. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think the survey is probably not perfect, but I think what it, where, um, but what it does show you, right, and, like, it's hard to, like, underestimate how – it's hard to um, overestimate, like, how, how much, like, white space there is, like, in both the high end and the low end. And I guess, Joe, what you didn't mention is there's also, like, this medium this medium segment where they're not quite, like, HBO, and they're probably, you know, a cut above, like, a, a professional YouTuber. So think, like, corporate videos and, like – you know, educational videos and like product videos. And that's actually really, I think where Avid's probably gonna attack first, right? But I think that the idea is you start from the very, very top and then you slowly make your way down, you know, and you really just try to slowly like expand that TAM, that total addressable market over time. And you slowly build out the right solutions and the right tools that each different segment of that market needs. And you have this different product differentiation along the way, right? Yeah. So the guys at the very bottom, like the, the real amateurs, Avid is packaging the software for free. It's, it's a freemium model, right? But if you're HBO, you're buying like, um, you know, hardware equipment that's like thousands of dollars. And you don't really care that you're spending like a couple hundred dollars per seat on a license because the salary of your average like Hollywood video editor is like 250K. So do you really care if you're spending a thousand dollars per seat on Avid software? Yeah, you don't. And that actually gives them good pricing power for Avid to say, hey, HBO, we're going to give you like this new cool cloud feature. We're going to charge you like 
20% more, but like, it's only a thousand dollars. Like, do you really care? And HBO's like, oh, like our editors want to work from home. Yeah, sure. We'll pay for this and maybe they'll use it. Right. So there's a lot of product differentiation at these different points of the, of the market too. And, you know, maybe like, I'd like to actually ask you guys a question as it relates to this, because I think that a freemium business model just like the pricing strategy and like the psychology behind it is like such a powerful business tool that I think in and of itself can like propel the business and like get it into as many hands as possible. Like, do you guys have any, have any thoughts about like the, the trade-offs or like, like packaging as a freemium versus like, you know, selling, you know, uh, an upfront price? Joe. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, I think it's, been proven time and time again that that model works right especially for top of funnel at least to get people in now converting could be more of a challenge i think we're seeing that that same model is being adopted by some of their competitors like black magic with davinci resolve on the video editing side uh, but yeah i i do think that you know that this the the free the, the freemium model the and you know i i think it's harder for these kind of companies or businesses to to do a truly free to play model, more, more of a, you know, free to try and to, to subscription is, is more typical. But I do think that if you were to able to adopt additional free to play mechanics, that then, then, then you can really start uh, to unlock more. I mean, more I'm sure if Avid like brought you in and you could like gamify it, I'm sure you could help them <laughs> uh, figure out how to better monetize it. Actually, I was, I was reviewing their, uh, they had this really great investor presentation in May uh, this like hundred page yeah. deck and they, they gave some stats about it actually. And they said that their free version of pro tools, it's called pro tools first. Um, it's been out for a couple of years and they've had about 2.8 million downloads and they're currently at 200 K a little bit over 200 K paying subs. Right. That's so that's bad. actually, I think that's, that's a pretty decent sell rate. Right. That's that's yeah. pretty good yeah. by the standards of our business, and I, I completely agree with what Macro said just now. I mean, what it comes down to is you get people in the top of the funnel, right? And you need to convert them, but not only do you need to convert them, you also need to train them. You need to turn them from junior users into senior users, and you need to be with them every step of the way. And our business has developed like a really sophisticated set of techniques for doing that. And I think education, frankly, education and training plays a huge role in that and like obfuscating, frankly, hiding the more complicated stuff and like revealing it in the right order and slowly introducing concepts. And like, yeah, if they're able to do that, then you get the upsell, then you get the stickiness. And if they have the leverage, you know, uh, if you have millions of people coming in the, the door and you, you, you know, inflect that leverage up, even a handful of percent, it makes a huge difference, right? So they need to bring in specialists in first-time user experience and, you know, user education, really, is what I would say. For sure. That's that's definitely one of the areas where if you look at Avid, like, five years ago, um, they were really struggling with, like, how to, how to successfully push a subscription offering on. Mm -hmm. And... You know, a couple of years ago, they made a lot of really interesting strategic hires. They completely revamped the, the UI and the UX of their video product, and they introduced the freemium version of it at some point. And so you could kind of see over time if you've been following the story. And this is actually one of the things that got me more bullish is I've been following Avid for more than a year. And 
every single time they talk to investors and they kind of give their incremental updates, you can kind of see like how they've slowly pivoted their, the way they talk about their business and the way they talk about like their tactic LTV and the way they talk about where they're going with innovation. And like, it wasn't really until this year, like the last quarter that they've really talked about like penetrating the low end of the market, which is something that like I've always thought was like pretty obvious just because of how large that market is. And now you could really see them talk about it and they talk about it in ways that make a lot of sense. They talk about how efficient, you know, the, the, the CAC spend, the user acquisition spend is going to be in that low end market if they can hit certain metrics on upsell, right? And you start to hear these incremental changes in, in the way the company understands their own business. And you start to think, huh, I wonder what else they could do as they continue to learn and as they continue to iterate their product. And so, Luis, maybe we could talk about key risks then. So, definitely sounds like there's a number of things working in Avid's favor. What are some of the things that you're worried about that could potentially impact their, their valuation or growth in the future? Yeah, so um, I think like going off of my earlier point, I think the risk that I was most concerned about last year was just like the health of their customer base. So there's definitely like, I had a lot of concern last year that um, film production sites were shut down. So there's also cord cutting, advertising revenue on broadcast TV was, was expected to get hit a lot. Movie theaters are, are closed. And, you know, there's a lot of like threats of like these legacy ways to make money that their customers have been doing for so long could potentially like disrupt and like really hurt their customer base, which obviously would not be great for Avid. And what I've kind of come around to and just really seeing it in the data and just really by studying their customers and talking to their customers is that actually the new ways of doing business are really working really well for these guys and you know the pivot to creating all these packages like the the apple well like it's not the apple but like the discovery plus or the disney plus or i think paramount and viacom have new offerings too and the fact that i, I think i'm actually pretty bullish on people will come back to movie theaters i don't think that broadcast tv is going to completely go away i think that people are going to continue to watch live sports you know it may be slightly in decline, but like there's more that there's more than enough other things, sources of revenue for their customer base that I believe will make their customer base actually healthier over time. Um, I think like competition, you know, is probably the risk that I think is in the forefront of everyone's mind, right? Because everyone can kind of see like the 300 pound gorillas that are like Adobe and um, Apple um, and, you know, there's also some other like more specific customers like or competitors, like you mentioned, uh, Black, Black Magic. is it Black yeah. Magic? Yeah, DaVinci Resolve. Um, and I've, I've just, it, this is really where I've kind of made the most progress in my own research by really talking to the customers and really figuring out how customers think about this. And th there's a lot of like, I could really go into the weeds here, but to kind of like just go through some of these the competitors one by one and like the 80-20 of Adobe is they don't make products for enterprise customers. One of the things that Avid does really, really well is not only do they provide like a software for cutting video, but they provide really good solutions for like managing the assets. And at the mm. end of the day, the reason why Avid 
has such an incredible competitive advantage, really in both video and audio, is because they they own the hardware. And because they own the hardware and they also own the software, they have lock-in. They have lock-in in a way that none of their competitors have. Adobe doesn't make hardware and it's not interested in making hardware. And because Avid makes the Nexus software or the hardware, um, their 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 software solutions just work better. It's, it's kind of like iOS and Apple, right? Um, the other thing is like I just realized that these are like false competitors, at least in the super high end video space. Because if you actually talk to video editors who who make things for Netflix, um, they they subscribe to both Adobe and and Avid. They they don't. It's not an either or. They just have both because you know. There's certain things that you could do in Adobe After Effects that just work really well, and then you just import the project into Avid. And there's certain things that Avid does really well, especially on the collaboration side and on like the multi-editor and multi-camera side that Adobe just doesn't really do well. And it's not so it's not really an either or, it's really Avid and, right? Yeah. On the DaVinci Resolve side, it's also like it's also like an and because what Resolve is really good at is uh, color correction. Like they just have like this really interesting niche in color correction, but they're actually, their actual editing software um, is based on like the, my understanding and, and the, you know, the people that I've spoken to, it's not really, it's not really enterprise grade. It has a lot of bugs. It's not really, there hasn't, the, that company, um, Blackmagic, they give away the, the software for free because they, they also have a hardware business and that's really where they make all their money. But it's, it's not, it's just, it's just not quite there based on my understanding. And on top of it, like if you're already on Avid and you're already using the hardware and the software, like there's a really high switching costs. Um, you know, it, it's Avid is really embedded. And if you ask a customer, like, are you thinking about switching off Avid? Like it's not even something they, they think about. Um, on the audio side, it's it's really similar and maybe even more so because like if you think about like a music engineer, um, they are very meticulous about the way they have their audio set up, right? The type of equipment they have, they want it to sound a certain way. They customize everything with all these sorts of plugins. The switching costs there are just incredible. Like they're it's it's they're not gonna they're not gonna switch. And it's also a situation where like they probably already have all the different software, right? Because if, if you really look at it, like Pro Tools is really, really good at certain things um, and it has certain plugins that are really, really good at certain things. Um, Ableton is really, really good at making electronic music because they have certain plugins that, you know, they have certain virtual instruments that are just built for electronic music. And um, Logic also has certain things that it's good at. And if you're really a professional musician, you probably can afford all of them, right? Maybe you have a preference for using one or the other for certain things. You know, really, the 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 customer that's really choosing between one or the other is really that that low end customer, and and that's really where I think it's more up for grabs. And the good thing about where Avid is today is it's kind of all upside for them because they don't really have any market share there, and mm -hmm. they also haven't really turned on the engine. Because what they're going to do now and what they're really talking about doing is actually investing in user acquisition, which is not something they've ever done, which is where I get excited because I think they, they already have a product. They just need to invest in it, right? 
And, you know, once they start investing and actually acquiring customers, um, I think we'll see some really interesting results. Maybe the last thing I'll mention is um, there is a kind of like network effect that exists in, in both audio and video, which is like, especially on the video side, um, there's a lot of collaboration. You know, someone maybe is like really good at color correction. Someone's really good at like doing the audio and people need to collaborate. And when they collaborate, it helps to be using like a similar file format. And that's really like Avid is really providing like these tools that are like they have this thing called Avid Link, where you could like share all your tools uh, or share all your files amongst each other. And if if let's say let's say you're like a, an editor and you're on a contract and you're working for HBO, if HBO is an Avid house, you're going to use Avid, right? And they're going to tell you what to use, right? So there's a little bit of network effect that happens when if enough professionals in an industry are using the same thing. Um, it kind of forces other people to use that software as well. Right. So, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think that their risks for me are more longer term, like more like five, 10 years out. Let's say if Blackmagic, you know, they use, uh, you know, kind of similar to what happened in the gaming market where they've just built huge teams of, of folks in China to build these massively, you know, awesome games. So like if they were to invest over time, maybe five to 10 years from now, you know, and if, if they were to improve a lot over time, maybe Blackmagic becomes a competitor in the future. But right now, I, I I kind of feel that I agree with you in terms of like the short to medium term growth drivers are just, I mean, it, like I don't, I it's hard for me to see much downside with Avid right now. Um, unless something catastrophic happens with like, let's say Netflix just takes over everything and then, you know, Disney Plus and all these other guys decide not to make more content. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's a very, that's yeah, not that's happen. not going to happen. So, so yeah. it seems like they're, they're riding a lot of like, not huge waves, but a couple of nice sized waves that should propel them for the next three to five years is kind of, kind of what it feels like to me. I don't, I don't know what you think, Steve. Yeah. I mean, so I, I agree. I think the thesis is compelling. Um, I actually have a, a question about sort of the, the technical aspects of this. And by technical, I mean like what the stock price is doing and has been doing in that, I noticed that the stock was just in the dumpster, like forever, um, up until about nine months ago, and then it like shot off like a rocket, right? It had been languishing like at five to eight dollars a share for years, and then nine months ago, it basically goes exponential and it's now at thirty-eight dollars. You said you bought in at like three months ago, right? So you yeah, realized I, I bought other... in in March. Yeah. yeah. So, and you've also said that this turnaround has kind of been in progress for a while. So I'm just wondering like what happened nine months ago that everybody was just like, oh wow, what an amazing opportunity. Did you have something to do with that? Like I, I had nothing to do with it um, personally. Um, so okay, Avid is a is a is a storied company. It's a 30 year old company, right? right? And there's probably been like two or three turnarounds over the life of it. And we don't have to the history is really interesting because it actually gets into like Steve Jobs and like what he did at Pixar and like what his vision was for disrupting this industry. And then what Adobe did, you know, when they came out their SaaS product and there's been multiple waves of, of disruption, but like the current, yeah, it, the history is really interesting, but what, um, and actually the history of the company is why they have such lock-in with uh, customers because the customers are so invested into this ecosystem. It's ridiculous. 
decades, um, right? Yeah. Decades. It's it's hardware, it's training, it's workflows, it's file formats. It's, they have all this storage that only works with certain things and they just don't want to mess it up. Um, so there's actually like several things happening um, at the same time. The first thing is like, I think, well, the first thing is that the company had a really bad balance sheet. It, had, it was over levered. And last year, and this is also, this was also one of my concerns, but last year they were able to go from like three turns of, of leverage to EBITDA to now they're like below two because mm. the, the, the free cash flow ramp from the growth of their software has been incredible. And it's just mm. been able them to like really shore up the balance sheet, right? That's one thing. The second thing is that um, they have historically been really, really, it's a very complex business, honestly, right? And the accounting is also very complex. And there's been some weird accounting things that they've had to like restate and fix. And the revenue, it doesn't screen well at all because the revenue looks like it's in de- looks like it was in decline, but actually it wasn't because there was a weird non cash accounting adjustment that was overhang. And there's also the transition to SaaS is also a revenue hit because when you go from selling, you know, something that's a thousand dollars upfront to now you're only selling it for a hundred dollars per month or a hundred dollars per year or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, this, it screened terribly, right? Over levered weird small cat stock that no one follows, never heard of. And like the, the financials don't look good. But then um, what happened was the company has actually done a lot on just improving their disclosures. So okay. they did a really great investor day in 2019 where they actually broke out a lot of metrics that they never broke out before. They just did a really great investor day in May of 2021. Part of it is because this activist investor called Impactive Capital has come in and they're taking 15% of the stock. Um, and I, I'm familiar with, with who they are and they're very smart investors and they've really kind of gone in and said, Hey guys, like you guys need to like improve your disclosures because the financial community, we don't understand what's going on here. Right. So yeah. part of it is just like an understanding story, which is That's like, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is just like, yeah. So I didn't need to cut you off, but like part of it's like people didn't understand how to read the financials and like what to make of this, right? Right. Like that they were doing good stuff, but they weren't telling the story properly, basically. And, yeah. And that actually really impacted the stock and suppressed it. Seems like. Right. And now, and now they're starting to really tell the story, and now it's starting to become appreciated. But there's another part of this, which is actually COVID was a huge tailwind. Um, sure. But it was actually it was actually a tailwind and a headwind. Because it's a headwind in the sense that, like, when all the when all the uh, film studios shut down, you know, their hardware revenue got cut by a third, um, yeah. and they also sell to like live concerts, and that went away completely. They sell to churches, they sell to all sorts of they sell to all sorts of organizations that just couldn't buy last year, right? So, and and by the way. That because all that's coming back, there's a lot of pent up demand, and it's actually this weird situation where it's a stock where it was simultaneously, uh, it's simultaneously a recovery play and simultaneously like a COVID beneficiary, which is like a really interesting situation. But how why is it a COVID? Why is it a COVID beneficiary? Because you know, 
these media organizations were kind of really slow to like change the way they were organized, but they had no choice. They had to buy SaaS licenses last year because they couldn't go into their editing phase. They had to buy the Avid stuff that Avid's been trying to tell them to buy for five years, right? And now that they're using the new stuff and like, it's going to stick. And one of the reason, the reason like that I got really bullish on Avid a few months ago is because I was talking to a couple of these film production companies and what they were telling me was, Hey, since the start of COVID, we've tripled our headcount in terms of content creators. Right. But we've actually exited all of our physical leases and what that means is we've had to we've replaced our physical costs with IT costs because now we've had to invest way more in IT. Just and if you think about everything. it, yep. yeah. And and what they're also saying is, by the way, people love this, and we're going to be permanent remote work. And I've heard this from wow. multiple film studios, and it actually kind of makes sense. Where yeah. this is actually a job where, like, if you're an editor, you're in post production, like you could do it remotely. You know, maybe there's some things where you might want to come in or do like a a group call or, you know, there are some things where like in-person collaboration makes sense. I think storyboarding is like a good one, but now think about what this means, right? For a studio that has like an editing bay, like maybe they have 10 editing bay that's like shared by a hundred editors, right? That are just reusing, you know, those editing bays have the same hardware, the same software. Now those hundred editors all need their own licenses, right? So (laughs) it clicked in my head a few months ago, I was like, holy crap, they've tripled their headcount. They they have to buy more licenses because they can't leverage the physical space. And yeah. they're going to keep doing this. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that Avid's going to sell them now, now that they're in the cloud. This is like a huge long-term tailwind for Avid. And that's just on the enterprise side, right? Okay. That's not even thinking, like, that's not even thinking about what's going to happen in like the mid-market and the low market, which they're now finally going to aggressively go after because they've realized, hey, like we have all this cash flow now, let's invest it, right? And I think they're going to be able to reinvest that cash flow and earn like really high rates of return on that reinvestment. So, so Luis, you bought three months ago. So seems like just looking at the chart here that you nearly doubled in terms of stock price. Yeah. And, and so we're talking about what, what that means from a market cap perspective. Looks like the market cap is currently sitting at under two, like $1.73 billion. So uh, talk to us about the valuation. Where, how much more do you think this thing has to run before it's, it's overvalued? What, what, do, what do you think? Yeah, sure. Valuation. And like valuation is an art, right? Like everyone thinks about it a little bit differently. And what I would say is when I bought it three months ago, I underwrote it under certain assumptions and what we've learned from the analyst day last month and what they've kind of given us in terms of like the new assumptions, I realized my, my assumptions were way too low. So actually my math three months ago was kind of similar to my math today, but now my numbers are all bigger because I, I've realized how much I underestimated it. Right. So that's why the stock can double, but if you're, if your estimates double also, then you know it's still attractive and it's still worth holding right yeah so and and by the way like i think this is the kind of business which which i believe and the reason why i really like it and why it's a huge position for me is because i think that this is going to be a common thing i think that in a year from now i'm probably going to realize that my assumptions from this year are too low you know 
I'm going to probably have to continue to update and, and revise them higher because I just think that when you take a business that has really strong competitive advantages and you throw it against like such a big market that's growing so fast, like, you know, it's very fluid. Um, but the way that I see it today is, yeah, the, the market cap is about $1.7 billion. They don't have a ton of debt. I think they have like $152 million of net debt. Um, so the, the balance sheet is not an issue anymore. But um, the if you think about it from just like a really high-level perspective, like Adobe is a nearly $300 billion company. Um, it's trading for 20 times sales. It's trading for 40 times cash flow. Avid is like a sub $2 billion company. It trades for five times sales. I think it's trading at roughly um, like 10 times its five-year out cash flows. Just using like a high level, um, just um, really simple screen. Like if you believe that this is a competitively advantaged business, like, okay, like I, I kind of think of it as like a mini Adobe. Right. And and I should also disclaim I'm long Adobe. I believe in that company, too. And I have a different thesis for that company. Um, so just high level. Right. And what Avid says is their their TAM is their TAM is in like at least at least the tens of billions. And they're currently servicing a TAM of about 13 billion. So to get from like one point seven billion, you know, on a 13 billion dollar TAM, I, I feel that there's a lot more penetration they could do against that TAM. Just common sense common sense way to look at it. In terms of like actual numbers, last month at the analyst day, the company said that they think they could earn $3.75 free cash flow per share by 2025. And today the stock's at like 38, 39. So based on those numbers, it's like roughly 10 times like a five-year cash flow number. Um, and like I said, Adobe today trades for 40 times. So you could kind of make your own assumption do you think that this business is worth 20 times, 30 times? And then do you think they'll actually execute, right? So the number that I gave them is I think it, I don't think it's an Adobe quality business. Um, I think Adobe operates at a scale that Avid will never get to, at least not the way it's currently set up, right? Yeah. Um, but I do believe that it could be a 30 times business, uh, 30 times free cash flow multiple business. Um, and if they execute against those numbers, that means it's a 3x over the next, you know, five-ish years. But I actually think those numbers are conservative. Um, and I think that we're probably going to have to keep updating those numbers. And what they, they, they did a really, really good job in terms of, like, unpacking what the assumptions are. But one of the, probably the most important assumption that they unpacked, and the reason why everyone owns a stock is, like, what the SaaS business is going to generate so they projected 375 million of 2025 SaaS revenue. So if you assume like a $25 per month ARPU, that gets you to like uh, one one and a quarter million paying subs. Today they're at half a million subs, right? So that's like a 33% sub Kager over the next five years. Over the last five years, it's been like more like a 50% sub Kager. Even pre-COVID, there the Kager was like you know, 50 plus percent. Um, and if you think that they can just start to tap into some of that white space, there's literally hundreds of millions of potential customers. There's about a million um, like high-end, like Netflix, HBO type customers. They've pretty much got that 
that segment locked down. They say there's tens of millions of what they call prosumer, which is like that mid-tier um, corporate or educational market uh, customer. So I think they could tap into that. You know, if they just get if they just get like a reasonable share of that, you know, they're already going to probably outperform or at least hit their estimates. And the crazy thing about like the low end market, especially with their freemium offering, if they really go aggressive to market, you think about it, there's like 40 million YouTube accounts today and that market's growing. So there's probably going to be like double the number of YouTube channels in five years. And if you just assume that like, like 20% of those accounts are like actual like serious YouTubers that are actually making a living off of it. And if you just assume that Avid takes like 5% share or 10% share, right? That's going to get you to like a really big potential sub number. And I don't think that is baked into the stock at all. Right. Yeah. Joe, we should, uh, we should get um, Avid up in here and uh, start doing some real, you know, fancy stuff. Right. <laughs> that's how we're going to get big. <laughs> <laughs> well, th that's, that's interesting, right? Because they're, they're not really addressing like podcasts. They're not really addressing a lot of, there's like a lot of interesting, like tangential markets where they could, they could make some interesting acquisitions or they've talked yeah. about potentially acquiring like plugin companies. They could acquire like a good color corrector. They could acquire resolve, right? They could do things that they could turn into like a bigger bundle or like a bigger platform and really like take the Adobe playbook and just like, just like really attack that team. And that's where I think, you know, this could be like, it could be like a good investment for like, you know, five, 10 years, you know, who knows, right? But eh, like there's, there are risks, obviously there's risks to everything. They, you know, the industry could change. They, they could, they may not execute. They, they may come out with like a faulty product. Um, they may face tougher competition. There's all sorts of risks. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that I, from, from my vantage point, the current valuation based on what I understand the risk to be, it seems like a pretty reasonable risk reward. Yeah, I, I think you've done a good job of convincing me, uh, Luis. I mean, I, I probably still don't displace my, my current picks with it, but it, it's, it's, getting, it's getting up there. I mean, I think it's like a very, very good stock to, to, to look at. Seems like it's pretty low risk and, you know, a lot of potential for upside. Absolutely. Steve, what do you think? Are you going to, are you going to buy some Avid? Look, I think you, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a smart analysis. I think, look, the stock is going to go up. I don't think there's any question about that. It could go up a lot. Um, to me, you know, I'm a little bit less convinced about the low end market opportunity. And that's the really exciting opportunity. Um, just because like when you're coming from the very top of the market and particularly when you have a hardware component, I think that can actually hold you back in terms of just company DNA and culture uh, when it comes to innovating at the low end of the market, it wouldn't surprise me to see some completely new entrant really blow that out and take that away before they could seize that opportunity, right? Yeah, or figure I, out how to do the, it. Right. The, the one thing that's not clear to me is just, be, just because I haven't been following Avid is just the quality of the management team, right? So like they have all of the pieces to really blow this thing out. I mean, they, they could 10x this company, but mm -hmm. you know, who, who's at the helm? Is it, is it Elon Musk or is it somebody <laughs> like, what, 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 what kind of, what kind of person is running the show? Right. So I, I think that's, that, that's, that would be the only question mark for me, but I, I think in terms of the story and growth potential, it's all there, 
all the right pieces are there. In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, the, the things, it's not really a risk, but it's actually something that I really worry a lot about is, yeah, like the the CEO and the CFO, they're, they're, they're really smart. And I think they've done a really good job and they've, 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 I think it shows from the way that they've pivoted and like what they've communicated to investors over the last couple of years relative to what they were doing five years ago, 10 years ago when they were just you know, getting their, their lunch eaten by Apple and Adobe. So but, was this um, the same, the same guys from five or no, 10 years ago? No, okay. it, it's, it's a new, it's a new guy. Right. Um, and, but what I would say is that the management team themselves are not the founders of the business. So they don't own like 20% of the stock. Right. So what I worry about is would they there there could be the incentives for them to just sell it at at a much lower price than I think it's worth, right? To Adobe. <laughs> right. Or yeah, right. Like they could sell if they if they sold it to, you know, name your company tomorrow for sixty bucks a share, you know, they may be incentivized to receive certain like upfront compensation benefits, right? Yeah. But if I think the stock is worth like $150 a share five years from now, they're gonna you know, that, that's not, in my opinion, the best outcome for me as a long-term no. shareholder. But what I would say is that, and what gives me a lot of comfort, because of what, what you're saying is really important, Joe, you know, you really need to understand the jockey. What I would say is that large shareholder that has 15% of the ownership, they have board seats. And wow. I, feel, I feel that their incentives are aligned with mine. And right. so I'm kind of hoping, you know, I... I I, I have a little bit more confidence and I do like the management team. I do like, you know, what they've been doing at the company. And I do like that there's someone on the inside, someone who's kind of like looking over the situation that has like good alignment with me. You know, one interesting thing that I just thought of as you were talking is like this, this concept that I, I believe Michael Burry had spoken about, which is based upon the proliferation of index funds and all these big funds just investing in everything. When it comes to the large cap companies, there's no price discovery. And so you basically have like a valuation premium against those just because of the sheer volume of index funds and things of that nature. Whereas with the small caps, are we going to see, for example, uh, you know, basically an arbitrage, a valuation arbitrage, large caps, small caps, such that we're going to have this trend of these bigger companies just acquiring the smaller cap companies for additional growth and there's going to be like a a valuation you know a gap based upon that that trend do, do you see that Luis, or how, how would you think about that 100 percent. i'm i'm smiling because i wrote about that in one of my investor letters last year <laughs> it's, it's 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 glaringly obvious to me right and it's not just large cap versus small cap like i actually where i really really see it is U.S. versus yeah. international stocks, right? Oh, Where yeah. you could have the same exact company trading in the U.S. and Europe, and there's like a 50% discount on the valuation. Same exact fundamentals, same exact company, right? And like I, I see a lot of those opportunities, and you know those really uh, are, are attractive to me because I, I literally view that as valuation arbitrage. And in those situations, Absolutely. they can close the valuation arbitrage by simply relisting to the U.S. And some companies have done it, and and they've seen like the immediate pop in their share price, right? Just because of enhanced liquidity, effectively enhanced and liquidity, 
just there's more eyeballs on the U.S. stock market because it yeah. attracts a lot of international money too. Yeah, and, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Wow. And, 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 but there's a similar there's a similar thing going on with like the large cap stocks where you know everyone kind of knows the stocks that are in the S P 500 or that are in the Dow, but like a company like Avid, which I think might be in the Russell 2000, but it's yeah. definitely not in like a bigger index. It, it's not as liquid. It, like most, like I would say, even a lot of media analysts aren't fully aware of what what this company is and what it does. Right. So. It's a diamond yeah. in the rough. For... I mean, what, what I've been telling my friends, right, because I've been hearing a lot of pitches of, for like Spotify and for like other like streaming companies, and they trade at much higher multiples, like you know Netflix and Spotify. You know, what I've been asking these guys is like, well, if you really like Spotify and Netflix, like, what about what about Avid? Like, if you believe in the ecosystem, this is like a different way to play it, and you actually get a pretty good deal on the valuation if you really believe in this ecosystem. And it's not exactly one for one, but I think it's kind of an interesting proxy. It's smart, honestly. Like everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. So, all right. Well, I mean, I I think that basically does it. Unless you guys have any final thoughts or comments, and maybe uh, Luis, maybe you can end with like if you don't have any final final thoughts or comments, uh, maybe some way for people to get in touch with you. Oh yeah. Um, so, um, if if you uh, look up my website, lvsadvisory.com, I'm actually going to write in my next. In I write a like a, a newsletter. Like I'm actually going to write about Avid. I'm going to write um, probably like more of a long form discussion of, of what we just had. And I'm also pretty active on Twitter oh, nice. at lvs at Luis V Sanchez seven seven seven. So. Those are two good places. And email address, Luis at LVS Advisory. Another guy with three numbers. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think that'll do it. Thanks so much for your time, Luis. Yeah, thank you. Steve, and for everyone else, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.